And I also have to be disciplined in doing that because this will be, I think, the second time that I've taught when we're doing translation. And every once in a while, we'll get this nice little hand gesture over to the right, my uh, right of me of like, slow down. And for a preacher like me, that's hard. I want to just truck through and speak fast. And so please give me your grace this morning. With that being said, um, next Sunday, we have another opportunity for those who may be interested in being part of this kind of translation endeavor that we're doing. If you speak Spanish or Portuguese, we want to invite you to a meeting next Sunday where we are going to train you on how we do what we do. We need an army of people really uh, doing this as we hope to provide this for, you know, the rest of our time, and maybe even add other languages to the fray. That would be really cool, wouldn't it be? So uh, if that interests you, we want to invite you next Sunday to come out after church and get a little training from our lovely Kenya here, who is heading up um, this endeavor, this ministry. Yeah, you can, you can, you can give a little shout out to Kenya. Yeah, well, hey, this is a great time of the year, right? This is the time of the year when we get to not just preach any message, but the message, the gospel. And, you know, it may be somewhat shallow to some here this morning uh, where we have, like, you know, the, the uh, little he's not here backdrop and we're asking you to hashtag and tag the church. But really, it's like... The only way that, well, one of the ways that we know to kind of get the word out, like we want people, it's not just about shining a big light on Hilltop, it's about shining a big light on the message, the gospel message, and, 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 and we're going to do just that starting this Sunday, we're going to talk, we're going to speak a lot about the gospel, and so we want everybody to be exposed um, to this, so it's just another way of which we can get the word out. I imagine if Paul had... Um, Instagram back in the day, or if, you know, Peter had Facebook, I imagine they'd have big accounts, and I imagine they would use it to their advantage to spread the gospel, and so we have it, we might as well use it, amen? amen? All right, well, if you would, turn with me to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, I know, I just said we're going to be talking or preaching about the gospel, and I'm going back to the beginning, but actually, in the beginning, we find the first sign of the gospel, actually, and so, if you would, um, hone in on the first ten words of the first verse in chapter one. It says this, if you don't know these ten words, they're kind of infamous, they're kind of famous, but it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is the book of beginnings. This is what it's known of. It's known as the beginning of the world, right? It talks about that in Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 25. It talks about the beginning of the human race in Genesis 1, 26 through 2, 25. It talks about the beginning of sin in the world in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It talks about the beginning or the promise, the beginning of the promise of redemption, human, human, humanity's redemption in chapter 3, verse 8 through 24. But in verse 2 of chapter 1, the book of Genesis gives us a snapshot of what the earth was like, the condition of the earth prior to God coming and creating all things. Let's read in verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the beginning, the earth was without form, right? Moses, he is actually the author of the book of Genesis, says that it was void and that a great darkness had covered it. Sounds like a happy place to be, yeah? Sounds like New England sometimes, actually. (laughs) Just kidding. But essentially, when we go and we unpack the Greek and we look at the word void, and we look at the word without form, or the words without form, we find that essentially the earth at this time was in a state of confusion and emptiness. It's kind of like indicative of our lives prior to the time in which we meet Christ, and Christ brings light into our lives. So the world is in a state of confusion. It's empty. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, leaves us with the impression that the earth was a dark and watery wasteland. It's getting better. (laughs) But it's actually phenomenal because in this chaotic state that the Spirit of God is said to be hovering over that nothingness that existed at the time, and God begins to create all things. The word created in verse 1 here literally means not formed from any pre-existing materials, but made out of nothing. <laughs> you imagine that. I mean, we serve an awesome, powerful, creative God. It's interesting that God would use pre-existing materials when he creates mankind, right? It's from the dust that God creates Adam. It's from Adam's that he creates Eve. But yet the rest of God's creation is literally created from nothing. God has no template. He has no point of reference. Until he speaks, there's nothing but water, darkness, and emptiness that covers the earth. So immediately, you'll see it in verse 3 of the same chapter, chapter 1. God goes into creating mode, right? He starts to create all things out of nothing, and there is a rhythm to that creation. There's a rhythm to the creation story, right? He creates the light and he separates the waters from the waters by creating land. He takes a step back, he observes, he looks, and what God sees pleases God. And in his sight, it is good to God. He speaks and says, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed. He steps back. He observes. He takes in. And what he sees pleases God. And in that we hear this in Genesis that God saw and it was good. He creates the living creatures that swarm the ocean. He creates every bird of every kind to fill the sky. And he again steps back, observes. And what God looks at, what he takes in, pleases God and he sees that it is good. There is definitely a rhythm to the story of creation. The phrase God said that emerges in verse 3 of chapter 1 continues to occur repeatedly throughout the first three chapters or two chapters of the book. Almost like a loop, right? You know, if you know anything about music, it's like this constant kind of, and God said, and God said, let there be. These two words mean that God willed, that God decreed, that God appointed 
So God willed, he decreed, and he appointed that the earth be filled with his glory. Namely, the glory of his creation. God looks at it. He takes it in. He observes. And to God, it is good. Why? Because it is filled with God's glory. So it pleases him. The story of creation, as I mentioned, has a certain kind of rhythm. It has a certain kind of pattern to it, right? Not to be repetitious, but God created this, God created that, and it was good. God created this, and God created that, and it was good. God created this, and God created that, and it was good. There's a certain kind of rhythm, but more than a rhythm, there was a harmony. There was a certain kind of peace in the garden. You know, if you know anything about music, even if you know nothing of music, um, it is a certain, it, it's powerful when musicians are tight, in time, in that pocket, in that pitch, you know, perfect pitch, perfect rhythm, and, and, and the people in the audience, and even the band are enjoying it, but it's a whole other thing. When the band, or someone in the band, hits that sour notes or drop backs in time, you know, or, or sings that sour note, right? It's, it's kind of like, even if you're not a musician, you look and you're like, what just happened? Like, something just like, you know, all it takes is that one musician hitting that wrong chord, that singer singing that sour note, and that drummer playing out of time, and the whole thing begins to unravel. That rhythm, that beat, that pocket breaks. This is kind of what happens in the story of creation. Something comes into the fray in Genesis 3, 6. And that perfect peace, that perfect rhythm of God created this, God created that, and he saw that it was good, it was broken. That peace, that harmony, that rhythm was disturbed. It came undone. Something had come unraveled. Someone hit a wrong note. Everything, right, is what Genesis says. Everything was pleasant. Everything was in harmony. Everything was in perfect peace and perfect rhythm. The lion could sit down with the lamb, right? But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Adam and Eve in this utopia disobeyed God. And everything came undone. That perfect peace of which our first parents enjoyed that harmony in which they enjoyed that presence. I mean, could you imagine being in the very presence of God that suddenly was disturbed, that rhythm was broken? I mean, think about it. There's Adam and Eve, our first parents, right? They're in perfect peace. They have no sadness, no sickness. They, my friends, are in the very presence of God. All Adam is required to do here is work the land, eat from any tree he wants to except for one. He's even given a helper, right, whom I might add is naked. And, and, and the one command in which God gives him is be fruitful and multiply. Are you kidding me? Like... Are you like, is this for real, God? (laughs) 
I mean, sign me up. I'm in. Like, what is, where do I, like, like, all I have, like, you can't, like, uh, my wife, me, you tell us to be fruitful. She's naked. I'm naked. We don't even know that we're naked. All I got to do is work a little bit, eat from, I mean, I love food, and there's just that. I mean, it sounds like a layup, right? Sounds like a good deal if you ask me. One wife, fruit on tap, except for one tree in the center of the garden, of which I'm not supposed to eat of. But, I, I, you know, I think I could manage that. But it's as easy as it sounds, as good as it reads on paper, Adam and Eve, our first parents, are unable to obey God in this utopia. They are unable to lock in and just do what is required. And friends, their sin has a massive, has massive, excuse me, ramifications, implications on the entire human race. Is it okay to still talk about the gospel in church? I mean, these are our roots, friends. We go all the way back to see where we were just like now, Adam and Eve, disobedient in our sin, depraved, in need of a Savior. And even in the midst of this perfection, Adam, Eve, his wife, cannot obey God. And their sin has massive, massive, massive impact on the entire human race. Now, I liken it to this in ninth grade. I once had this cool sweater. Um, Yeah, I did. It was uh, quite faded. Uh, It had a couple bleach stains on it. And this was like in the height of like, you know, grunge when Nirvana and Pearl Jam were kind of hitting the scene, right? And we're like, yeah, it smells like teen spirit, you know? And, you know, what's the fashion that suddenly came, you know, became cool in our context back in ninth grade was like flannel shirts, ripped jeans, you know? Anything that looks greasy and grungy, you're, you're in, right? So I had this one shirt, kind of looked greasy, grungy, holes in it and whatnot. And um, it had this cool little rip in this corner, bottom corner of it, I don't know if it's a corner, but in this little seam here, and I, you know, over time, one of them, I thought I would make it cooler by just making that hole a little bit, you know, bigger, you know, I'm just pulling at it in history class, I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool, like, little hole here, and over time, it started to develop, like, the string started hanging from the shirt, and, and, and it, it was cool, but yet the string just hung a little bit below my knee, and I was like, well, that doesn't look right, so I started pulling at the string, right? Started just like, oh, maybe I can get this. I'm in school. There's, I don't have a pair of scissors. I got nothing to deal with. I'm just like pulling it, pulling it, pulling it. And, and, you know, before I know it, like, I'm pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. I could probably stitch together a carpet by the time, you know. <laughs> I'm just pulling at this thing. And before I know it, man, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I have a midriff. You know, that before I know it, I'm like sitting in class. I'm a little skinnier then, so it's okay. But I'm sitting in class, and I realize that this thing is creeping above my uh, belly button, and there is a, like, a, it's developed on the floor, this string. <laughs> it's just pink faded string just down here in the corner. And I'm, you know, like, I'm embarrassed, like my friends are like, what's going on? Like your belly's showing, you got this, you okay? This is, this is not directly the way we would describe the effects that Adam and Eve's sin 
had on humanity, on you and I. But it gets kind of close to the narrative, to the biblical narrative. If you would, turn with me to Romans 5, 12. We'll read the second half. This is what Paul says about our first parents' parents' disobedience. He says this, through one man's disobedience, sin, sin, excuse me, came into the world. Could you imagine the, the Apostle Paul writing this about you? You know, like I would be like, you know, like, my God, Paul, like take it easy. But this is kind of Paul's way of explaining the impact that Adam and Eve's sin had on humanity. In the same chapter, Paul says this, one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all Men, that's verse 18 of chapter 5. A little bit more in the same chapter, verse 19. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. My God, Paul, take it easy. But you know what? Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing it up because we don't like this side of the story. We really don't. You know, when it comes to our own depravity and our own need for a Savior, this gets a little bit crazy. It's almost like, well, I wasn't there. Like, you know, it wasn't my sin that, that did this, that disrupted and, and unraveled or undone, you know, undid uh, the entire, you know, introduced sin to the entire human race. It wasn't me. But, but, There's this thing within our nature where we don't want to take responsibility and ownership for our part. And if you don't know, we kind of bear some similarities to our first parents, right? Wasn't it it Adam who blamed uh, the woman in which God had given him in verse 12? It's like, you know, God comes to them in the cool of the day and, and they hide because they realize they're naked, suddenly it becomes a problem, and, and God says, Adam, where are you? And, and, and Adam comes out and he explains the situation, but he immediately kind of pivots and says, it was her fault. And then the woman pivots and says, it was the serpent's fault. I mean, this is indicative to human nature. We constantly, even now in 2019, it's, it's far more convenient and easy to blame somebody else for our own depravity and our own sin. It, it's easier to kick the can down the road, pointing the finger, well, it's their fault, it's our pastor's fault, you know, it's my boyfriend's fault, you know, whatever it might be. But this, this, see, the, the message of gospel is, it, 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 is this, it, well, it's not the entire, but I would say, The hope for our, uh, I won't back myself into a corner. That would be terrible, so I'm not going to do it because some of you would be looking at me like, what are you? Anyways, it's, it's, it's more convenient. It seems more rational and logic to always point the finger at somebody else. But may I suggest to you guys that it's this part of the story? It's the part of our depravity and sin that makes the second half of the story powerful. You know, I don't know if you have thought like this, but in order for there to be good news, you have to know at some point, uh, and even today, that there's bad news, right? That's what makes good news such good news, you know, that it kind of goes in the opposite and rails against and kind of, you know, you know kind of, I don't know what that was. <laughs> I was going to say... I was going to say, never mind, but I, I don't want to back myself into a corner. But isn't it interesting that, 
you know, in order for there to be good news, at some point there had to be bad news. Listen to Romans now, chapter 5, verse 7. The same chapter, it says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see how Paul uses that? He points to the, the, the disobedience of our first parents and then he highlights our hope. He says, just, through, just, just, just as one man and one woman's disobedience affected the entire human race, race excuse me, now one man, uh, Jesus Christ, through that man we will receive what? Grace and righteousness, I mean, it goes on in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness will lead to the justification in life for all men. It's this, it's this you know, Paul's using it. He's highlighting our depravity. He's highlighting our sin. And then he's lifting up Jesus. He's putting Jesus on display and saying, hey, like, like through one man, disobedience entered the earth, but through this man, Christ Jesus, there is hope, there is righteousness, there is grace. In verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. It's our sin and God's forgiveness of our sin that makes the gospel so powerful. Let me say that again. It's our sin and God's forgiveness of our sin that makes the gospel powerful. It's our disobedience now clothed in the obedience of Christ that made a sinner like me and you righteous that's what makes the gospel so powerful. It's that prior to Christ, I was without hope. Now because of Christ, I have a lot of hope. Amen. You guys make me work hard, man. But we've lost sight of the gospel. We really have. Just the simplicity of what we've been spared from. We really, we have doctored and kind of lost sight, lost, you know, our, our love and affection for just the simplicity of the story of Jesus Christ, the gospel. But you know what's so precious? And let me just remind us this morning, what makes the gospel so precious and powerful is that God meets our every failure with his undeserved grace, undeserving grace. One other thing that the book of Genesis is known of is the beginning of when God pursues humanity. It's in Genesis 3.8, if you want to turn there, winding down here. Genesis 3.8, I stumbled across this in preparation. You know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but there have been times when I have fell prey to the thought or the delusion that, that God was a bit more grumpy in the Old Testament than he was the new, you know? Like, like 
like maybe those 400 years between, um, you know, Malachi and Matthew, like God got some counseling and like, you know, he talked to like the, the, the angelic host and he like sat down with the Holy Spirit and Jesus says, hey, listen, guys, I don't know if this kind of wrath kind of you know, uh, righteous indignation thing is really going over well. What do we do? You know, like, I, I realize I may be going a little too far with this. You got, can you help me? Is there anybody want to, you know, oh, Jesus, that's, oh, okay. Yeah, I could send my son. I could give, you know, you know, I've, I've often have fallen under the delusion, the deception that somehow, in some way, God became a little bit more chipper, a little bit more full of grace, a little bit more, patient and kind and I, I, I've, I've I've really I've lost sight that that God's kindness stretches all the way back even to when our first parents Adam and Eve had sin and this is a verse that kind of stuck out in a verse that I want to highlight for us this morning in Genesis 3 8 this is what it says and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. The Bible says that Adam and Eve, his wife, heard the sound of God coming towards them in the garden. Now, we already touched upon that Adam and Eve hid because why? They realized they were nakedness. They were naked, not realized they were nakedness. That was weird. That feeling came upon them. They had never felt that feeling before, but suddenly when God came walking towards them, they felt it and they hid themselves. But something interesting to me that stands out here is that God came towards them. Now let me say that again, because some of our hearts in this room are so dull that we can't even feel the power of how even now God is pursuing us. And, and, and we've lost the kind of sense of treasuring the simplicity of the gospel. And here it is. Here it is in Adam and Eve's case. It's the mercy and the grace of God is that God in this moment, right after they sin, right after they have disobeyed, God comes after them. And so the book of Genesis is not just known of the book of beginnings and the fact that God created the world or sin entered the world but it's also the first moment, the first glimpse that we see God pursuing humanity. Yeah, you can clap. It's okay. I know. It's, I know it's okay to clap. It's, it really is. It's okay to get excited about your redemption. No, seriously, I'm being very serious. It's okay to show excitement over your redemption because you know what? You and I didn't deserve. God could have very well walked in the other direction. And he would have been just as just, just as merciful, just as perfect. Oh, now we got some clapping, right? That's good. God comes towards. God is the pursuer here. God could have walked in the other direction and he didn't. What if God did walk away? Right then, right there, if he had chosen to walk away, the human story would have been over. Can you imagine with me that book of Genesis, 
that, that verse 8 of chapter 3 was never there or it said something different. <laughs> like God, because of their sin, walked away. No, God, because of their sin, walked towards them. And actually here, and I'm sorry, I didn't write it down, uh, the verse, but we actually see the first sign of the gospel in the book of Genesis where through Mary's line, um, God promises her a child or an offspring that through the line of Mary would, would emerge a, a king, a person who would redeem what the serpent had stolen. Even in the midst of great sin, even in the midst of the first time uh, anybody had disobeyed and railed against God, there's such hope. God promising that a son would come out of Eve's line that would crush the head of the serpent. Guys, this is unbelievable. I know that God has, in my mind anyways, in my, I tallied up my life as a believer. There's probably many times that I could say, yeah, God could have walked away. Maybe he should have walked away, but he didn't. Can anybody relate to that? A God who still pursues your heart? God chooses to pursue us every time. This speaks volumes of the character of God. Picture with me, if you could, the moment after you sinned, right? The moment after you sinned and falls short of the glory of God, God quickly seeks you out and says, where are you? This is what he did for Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? <laughs> like, have you ever noticed that we have a tendency to run and hide and shame and isolate when we sin, but somehow God just gets more aggressive and kind of presses, where are you? What are you, you know? That was the beautiful thing about the woman at the well. He, Jesus is having this conversation with a woman and, and actually Jesus invites this woman to go get the source of her pain and her sin and bring that man to him. Wow. Just go over your head. Probably did. We serve a God who comes after us and, and who pursues us. And I just want to encourage you today that if you're saved, the jig is up, man. Stop pulling away because you can't out the grace of God. We need to stop withdrawing and isolating ourselves when we've fallen short. We need to know that God pursues us and we need to fall face forward into that pursuit and say, God, here I am. This is what makes the gospel so precious. Because, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus, uh, there would be no hope. But more than that, there would be no Daryl. There would be no you and I coming even today in the presence of God. Sinful, depraved people like we did this morning in worship coming. I mean, if you believe scripture, we're not just, you know, you know on the outer courts. We're, the Bible teaches that when we worship that we are in the very presence of God, that, that um, when two or three are gathered, what? what does it say? Jesus is here. And so that's the way I see it. Don't always feel it, but that's what I think is going on. 
But you know what makes that possible? Jesus Christ makes that possible in His sacrifice. Because apart from Jesus, I, I, I probably would come into God's presence a, a bit timid, <laughs> a bit ashamed, lacking confidence. But because I have an advocate, because I have the blood of Christ, because I have someone who advocates for me, I, I can come. I don't have to hang out on the outer courts. I don't have to stay withdrawn and isolated. I can come, not because of my own righteousness. Not because I'm a good person. But because of Jesus. Ray Stedman says this. He's the author of Authentic Christianity. It is most striking to me that all religions apart from Christianity begin on the note of one man seeking after God. Only the Bible starts with the view of God seeking after man. That highlights an essential difference between our Christian faith and the other major religions of the world. We find all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, not a God who is mad at us, but a God who pursues us, a God who comes after us. Even death couldn't stop Jesus because significant to our redemption was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says that apart from the story of Jesus being um, resurrected, our faith would be empty. It would be vanity. We would be pitied. And in order for Jesus to bring this whole thing to an end, not even the death, not even, excuse me, death can keep Jesus from still coming after us and beating the grave because it was in that that our salvation, not only our salvation, but our resurrection was completed. What are you celebrating this Easter? Matter of fact, what are you celebrating after Easter? You know, I love this time of the year, but I, I, I can never get over the fact that a majority of people just come to church on Easter and Christmas. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I think that the gospel deserves more than that. Not necessarily about coming to church, but just like, like this story, this story of our redemption, this story of our salvation should be enough for us to be forever grateful on this side of eternity, to always not just celebrate on April 21st, but on May 1st, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know that, 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 that the story of Christ's resurrection should carry us through all the way to Advent with just celebration and joy. Why? Because somebody did something for us which we could not do ourselves. I don't know, for me, I'm trying to get rid of all the clutter, you know, and, and, and the things that I think I need to be grateful, the things that I think I need to be joyful, you know, I, 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 I'm really just centering my whole faith and walk with the Lord around one story. You may think that's a bit foolish, but I actually think it's wise. I'm basing my Christian walk, my faith, my excitement, my commitment, my zeal around the gospel. And, and for me, friends, 
Easter is a great time of the year. But I'm not just looking to be excited around the resurrection. You know, one day out of the year, I'm looking to be forever grateful and excited till I am dead and in the grave about this story and about this man. You may think, why is he yelling? I don't know. Like, I'm getting looked at and counseling and... No, I'm just just joking. I just get a bit heated and zealous about this, so please forgive me. But I wonder how, you know, I have my concerns that this, this story, the story, the gospel story, we have, we are losing sight of, and we are, when I mean by losing sight, I mean we don't hold it, we don't revere it as being precious, we, we kind of just, like, you know, familiarized ourselves with, oh, yeah, Jesus went to the cross. and blah, 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 blah. We, we don't really connect with the gravity and the weight of what Christ did for us. And somehow, I don't know even how it makes sense, but there's one day out of the year that it kind of sticks. And, and, and we go, you know, from Ash Wednesday through Lent, and we kind of think, you know, upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then... What happens after Lent, I don't know. But I would like to see us as a church lock in with the gospel story. And let it keep us. Let it sustain us. Let it be what motivates us. What we sing about. What we celebrate. What we preach. What we write books about. What we smother all over our Instagram page and Facebook page. This is good news. This is good news. God pursues us even now. And you know what? The gospel isn't just for unsaved people. It's for saved people. It's for you and I just as much as it is for somebody who has never named the name of Jesus. I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 20, 30, 15, 5, 2 years. The gospel is for you and for me, and it will be for a lifetime until Jesus Christ comes back. Why? Why? Why is the gospel still for us? Because we are still sinners. I don't know, but if you were a fly on the wall with my week, you would have saw me blow up my neighbor this week. If you were a fly in my car, you would have probably seen me lash out at somebody who was driving slow and not act much like a a saint. You know, if you were a fly on the wall of my house, you may have seen me and my wife go back and forth in kind of some heated you know, conversations that if you saw it, you might have thought, that's our pastor? Oh my goodness, what's wrong with that guy? But oh, listen, I am only a pastor today by the grace of God, by the mercy and grace of God. Matter of fact, I am only a Christian today because of the grace and mercy of God. It's not by my works, my deeds. My being good. That saves me. It's by his goodness. His work of the cross. 
that I am saved. And now I'm just looking for the fruit of my salvation where my tongue is tempered. I talk to my wife in a a loving way. I don't lash out at my neighbor because he's raking leaves on my yard. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it, you know? Like, let's just remind ourselves of why the gospel is so precious. Even to us in this room, it's because we, in some ways, many ways, are still what? Sinners! I know, that's a bit of a taboo, taboo word to use in the church. I don't know why. I'm excited. Like, suddenly we've, we've wanted to replace who we are, but, you know, with, with some kind of other vernacular. I don't I really get it. But the truth of the matter is, guys... I am a sinner saved by grace. There is no, nothing good in me, of me, apart from the grace of God and the work of His Holy Spirit in my life. I, I, I don't know about you. I'm comfortable with that. That, that, that makes things make sense. <laughs> Why? Because when I lash out at my neighbor, I'm like, oh, there it is. There's that fallen nature. There's that guy that needs to go to the cross. I'm comfortable with that. I'd rather think of it that way than try to create some other theology where I start getting confused. I'm like, why am I like this dual, like why do I have like this, like on one hand I'm preaching Christ and the next hand I'm yelling at the person not using their blinker. No, it's seriously. What makes the gospel so precious is my sin, really, in that I, can't, I don't have to hope in who I can be or what I am presently. I can hope in Christ and what he's done for me, what he's purchased for me. And that, that for me brings me a great peace. I don't think I'm lessening, uh, you know, the latest book of like how, you know, you're, you're, Never mind, I won't go there. That would slam a lot of things. We'll we'll leave that right there. (laughs) I don't know if this is resonating. Here we are, the first Sunday of April. And we're... Once again... Reminded of God's grace, reminded of his sacrifice for our sins, we're reminded of who we are and who he is, and who we are because of who he is, and we're grateful. And this month, I just want to capture that as a church, and I don't want to lose it. The Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, I want to hold on to it. I want it to fuel my faith, my Christian, my walk, my, my, my love and zeal for Christ. I want this story to be the gas in my engine. And I want it for this church badly. And so I pray that through these weeks you do invite friends out to church as we get into the story a little bit more. And we see God, the God who has pursued us, who has come after us from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation. And in that, just maybe we'll marvel 
and our hearts will be full of love for Jesus again. Will you pray with me? Jesus, 